Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. And, but the trick is, if you start buying your victory cards early in the game, is there a little reverb? If you start buying your victory cards early in the game, they don't have any monetary value or utility for you in your deck. So it's more strategic to buy action cards and currency cards until you reach a point in the game when everyone starts to sense that the game is almost up, and then you furiously trade up out your mountain of gold and silver cards to buy those victory cards, which, buy, which win you the game. But here's what always gets me. I love the gold currency cards, even though they don't end up counting for anything at the end of the game when the score is tallied. In the midst of the game, I get so immersed in the pursuit of gold, I lose all my senses, which is kind of silly because it's just paper with gold on it. (laughs) Even though I don't consider myself a horribly materialistic person in my normal life, In the game of Dominion, all restraints are off. (laughs) My growing little stack of yellow cards makes me gleeful. And the rub is that Judson will often beat me because he is more strategically cashing out his currency cards for victory points while I just can't get my eyes off the gold. And then there's this enormous letdown at the end of the game when I realize that not only has my husband soundly beat me, but my little stack of gold, which I have working so hard to accumulate in the last hour, has no value to my final score, no value in my real life, and I just have to put it back in the box. <laughs> but this realization, when, I, when the game is over, which is much like coming out of a, a daze, is a helpful analogy to understand Jesus' intent in the parable of the dishonest manager in Luke 16, which is our parable for today. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that if we spend all our days on this earth accumulating money and forgetting that our days here are limited, we won't be able, and we won't be able to take that money with us to the eternal age to come. We will have a jarring realization when the game is up and we have little to show Jesus in terms of our participation in his kingdom. And in this parable, Jesus is calling his disciples to ponder what our posture towards our worldly wealth should be in light of our eternal destination. What is it to be a wise steward of worldly wealth? If we can't take our savings accounts, our financial portfolios, our houses, our cars, our estates, up to the Father at our death, what do we bring? And how shall we think about the use of our money in light of the ultimate objectives of the Christian life? These are the questions that this perplexing parable addresses and the questions we'll be mulling over today together. Not easy questions, but first let us pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning as we ponder this tricky parable. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we dwell in your word. Soften our hearts and convict us with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this parable is a head-scratcher. It's one of those parables that is not preached on very often, nor included in devotional books, because it's so hard to wrap your mind around. A wise person once told me that there are many places in Scripture particularly in the Gospels, where the word purposely makes you trip to slow you down and to make you pay attention, almost like a speed bump. Jesus doesn't want to just spoon-feed us quaint sayings about the kingdom of God that we can embroider on a pillow. He wants, us to, shock, he wants to shock us with truths about the kingdom that are so gut-wrenching and worldview upending that we are left stupefied and changed forever. I find this quote from C.H. Dodd very helpful. 
At its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I think that's helpful. Even though that might not be a comprehensive definition for all of Jesus' parables, it certainly applies to this one. We stumble and we're asked to, to come into a posture of active thought. So let's slow down and just dwell in the story of the parable together to hear what Jesus is trying to say to us. So our main characters in the parable are a rich man and his business manager who runs his estate for him. The quantities of olive oil and wheat that the rich man is owed are many times the yearly wages of an average worker. So we must assume that he is a very rich man indeed. In this time, wealthy landowners became wealthy through owning vast amounts of land and sharecroppers and servants farmed it for them. Or is it, it is also possible that he is a rich merchant of some kind, trading in goods. Regardless, his business was complex and he saw fit to have a manager oversee his estate. But the manager, we learn, is reported to be very bad at his job, and his boss fires him. Then what does the manager do? He panics a bit. I'm old, he thinks. I'm too old to dig ditches. Incidentally, this is what McIntyre says when an irrigation pipe breaks and someone needs to fix it. I'm too old to dig ditches, he says. And so usually Julia digs the ditch. <laughs> the manager knows that he is about to be penniless, prospectless, and homeless as managers often lived in their master's homes. So what does he do? The manager comes up with a shrewd scheme. He knows he has very little time to leverage the power he does have until the boss gives him the boot. So he quickly calls some folks who owe his boss money, and he does them a favor by greatly reducing the vast amounts of olive oil and wheat that they owe the rich man. He does not do this out of the goodness of his heart, but out of the hope that they will owe him a favor and host him in their home. His boss discovers this scheme, we are not told how. And instead of being infuriated, the rich man recognizes the shrewdness of this wicked man and commends him for it. Now why would the rich man do such a thing when he was just cheated right under his nose? Well, one way to read this is that the worldly game that both the rich man and the manager are playing, in this game, the manager's scheme was a good move. So player to player, the rich man has to say, well played. Jesus seems to suggest that the entire enterprise that the rich man and the manager are playing is dishonest and flawed. It is of the world, not of the kingdom. Both the rich man and the manager are looking out for number one. Their game is the most commonly played game in our world, how to accumulate wealth, favor, and security in a dog-eat-dog society. And in verse 8, Jesus reflects on the story he has just told and says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Tricky sentence. This is a pivot sentence in the passage where Jesus takes us out of the story and into his explicit teaching. The manager, a quintessential, of the people of the, a quintessential example of the people of this world, is wicked, self-centered, dishonest, and disloyal. But he's shrewd. Shrewd, what does this word mean? Webster says, having a, or showing a sharp power of judgment. He knows the rules of the game in the fallen world in which he lives. He understands how his society works, how to wield the tools of power and influence, how to curry favor. And Jesus holds this character up to his disciples and says, look, this guy is fallen. 
this guy is not like a moral example, but he understands the reality he lives in. He knows what the aim is. He knows what the game is. He's clever. Why aren't the sons of light, a.k.a. the followers of God, as clever at knowing the reality of the kingdom of God? Why do we live as if this corrupted world and its systems of value were all that matter in our lives, rather than as if the metric of ultimate value occurs in the age to come when we meet our Lord face to face? Why are we not more shrewd about how we live on this earth, given that our whole life is about serving God? Then Jesus says in verse 9, in one of the most confusing and differently interpreted sentences in the Gospels, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Or as the ESV translates, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. What do you mean, Jesus? <laughs> okay, there are several different ways that this has been interpreted over the years. I don't have time to go into all of them because the list is like 25 examples long, but I'm just going to dive into the one that makes most sense to me in the humility that I might be wrong. In fact, I had a great conversation with Andrew Talbert last night who teaches at the Bible at Caldwell, and he interprets this as Jesus speaking ironically, and he has a very convincing argument, but I would have had to rewrite my whole sermon, so <laughs> there are just always a myriad of ways to think about how a parable um, <laughs> can be interpreted in Christian tradition, and the tradition invites dialogue and dispute and disagreement. But one way interpreters read this statement is that Jesus is turning, turning worldly norms on their head and saying that friends, um, that the friends that you should be making with earth, earthly wealth are actually those that the world neglects and demeans, the poor, the meek, the mild, and the suffering. This interpretation requires reading this parable in light of the overall themes of Luke and particularly the parable that comes directly after this in Luke 16 that will be preached on ne next week, in which a beggar named Lazarus spends his life sitting hungry and wounded outside the door of a rich man who neglects him. When they both die, Lazarus the beggar is the one with the eternal dwelling with Abraham. The rich man calls to Abraham, asking him to send Lazarus down to serve and help him in hell. But Abraham denies him and says that because he had all the earthly comforts and Lazarus had none, the rich man must endure his tor torment while Lazarus is comforted. So in this reading of our parable today, what Jesus is saying here in the parable of the dishonest manager is that being shrewd with money in light of the kingdom of God actually means investing it in those whom Jesus says are blessed in the Sermon on the Mount, the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated. This is because if you take Mary's song of praise in Luke 1 seriously, the coming of Jesus' kingdom means that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of hungry, humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So Luke, over and over again, implies that those who will be first in the kingdom of God will be those who are last in our worldly kingdom. In this reading, Jesus is saying, Look, this dishonest man with money that isn't even his realized that it was advantageous to use it to gain friends who can take care of him after he no longer has access to that wealth. Jesus says, how much more should you, who follow me, who have money that isn't yours but belongs to God, 
and who knows it isn't yours but belongs to God? How much more should you use it to build relationships with those who will host you in the age to come when worldly money no longer has any value? In other words, use your earthly resources, which aren't truly yours and are not eternal, to invest in the kingdom of God. This is connected to Jesus' earlier teaching in Luke 14 when he tells his disciples, can I have a slide? When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So we get this eschatological reward. I was talking to my friend Sarah Dickey, who just left our fold to go and start a farming ministry in Indiana with her husband, and they one day hoped to serve recently incarcerated folks at their farm. And we were talking about how tricky this parable is, and she was trying to help me, and she came up with a brilliant concept. She said, it's kind of like money laundering for God. <laughs> that was so good. Jesus wants us to take the worldly wealth that is so often tainted with sin and corruption and money launder it out of the system of sin into the kingdom of light. Money, or mammon, the term scripture uses for the evil power of money, wants to keep cycling in worldly systems of abuse and extortion that keep the poor poor and the rich rich. But if we, as followers of Jesus, took it out of that system and started to invest in an alternative economy of care and love and service, what would that look like? In fact, the Christian church has been doing this for the past 2,000 years. Though there have been many instances of failure on the part of the church and individual Christians, many faithful Christians over the centuries have lived in radical generosity and have pointed the world towards an ethic of sacrificial giving, inspired what Jesus says at the end of this parable. For Jesus goes on in verse 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you of your own? Here, Jesus switches course from saying what we should emulate in the manager's shrewdness to what we should not emulate in his character. We shouldn't be caught by God misusing the abundance of his created world in a way that plays by the world's dishonest systems of wealth, accumulation, and exploitation. If followers of Jesus cannot be trusted with using worldly wealth wisely in this life, then how can we be expected to be stewards of God's true kingdom riches in the life that is coming? If we want that great inheritance that comes with new creation, the inheritance of joy and beauty and peace and intimacy with our Father, we have to demonstrate in this life, when we are given stewardship over our current creation, that we can use it to God's glory and not our own glory. The world teaches us that the most responsible thing that we can do with our money is to make sure that we take care of our 65 to 100-year-old selves that the end of all of our salary is to save for retirement, send our kids off to college, pay off our mortgage, etc. And this is because the horizon of our secular world ends at death. The only thing that matters in this life is our current life. So the only thing that matters to do with our money is to care for ourselves in this life before we die. But Jesus is saying, this life is far from all there is. The end of our lives as Christians is not retirement. It's our eternal dwelling in the kingdom of God. 
Therefore, the most responsible thing we can do with money is to invest in the kingdom of God. The greatest financial danger in our life is not running out of money when we are old. The greatest financial danger in our life is looking our eternal judge in the face when we meet him and telling him we squandered what he gave us. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't save for retirement or do any of these things, but I'm saying that the world's norms about how we should use our money should not be the first and primary way about how we think about using our money. Rather, investing in the kingdom of God should be our first and foremost in our minds. And it's so hard to do. I feel like when Judson and I wine app, which is our little budgeting app, we go through all of the things for us first, and then like tithing comes after, and then giving comes after. So it's really, it, I think that this is a lot about prioritization and how, how we think about ordering. For Jesus says in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is it. The parable itself might be tricky, but this is as clear as day. We cannot serve both God and money. In the society in which we live, this is the fight of our lives. In fact, it is the fight for our lives. The idol of money, mammon, is a very powerful force in our culture, and it constantly wants to seduce us away from God and towards its magnetic pull. I've been feeling my own sinfulness in this area so acutely in this season of my life. Adult responsibilities, the prospect of buying a home, inheriting a sum from my grandfather, running a ministry that aims to be financially self-sustaining. All of these forces have left me kneeling on the altar of money and not on the altar of God sometimes. Fretting about money, clinging to money, striving for money, even for good intent. Missing my father's lawyer income that had so much flexibility. I've just been slain by it in the season, driven by this feeling of scarcity even amidst my abundance. But God offers freedom from this bondage. Moreover, he offers something exciting and joyful to do with our worldly wealth that will satisfy us so much more deeply than the iPhone 2 Pro XYZ thing <laughs> or a plump, plump bank account, whatever our temptation is for hoarding or for spending. God offers the t opportunity to see the world through his eyes and to use our worldly money which to God must seem a little bit like dominion play money, right? Mm -hmm. To partner with him in redeeming our broken world. The world tells us that the most tantalizing thing to do with our money is to put it in a system of compound interest, that this is the true magic of our world. But I tell you that the most amazing multiplication, the most amazing compound interest actually lies in the hands of our Lord who will take your investment in someone's life or in a ministry and make it bear more fruit than you can possibly imagine. This June, we had a visitor from Rwanda named Celestine Musakura, who runs the African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries in East African countries, Sudan, Rwanda, the Congo. And he works on inspiring radical forgiveness in the power of the Holy Spirit after genocide and violence. And he reaches so many people. He's an amazing man. And he told this amazing story in this very sanctuary about when he was orphaned as a teenager. His parents disowned him and his village kicked him out when he became a Christian. And the person who put him through school each month with $7 a month was this low-income woman in Texas who got connected through, to Celestine through a missionary. And she didn't have anything to spare, but she would each month collect recycling cans and trade them in for cash. And then she would send that cash in an envelope with a letter to Celestine and wrote him frequently. 
And that small amount of investment kept Celestine fed and clothed and in school for de a decade. And he credits her with enabling him to now reach thousands of lives with the gospel through his remarkable, fruitful ministry of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an amazing story? It's made me cry. I'm not going to cry. It's just, it was so powerful listening to him give credit to this woman. I think her name is Mary. And I think the thing that really inspires me about that story is this woman, Mary, um, invested her heart along with her time and her money. She believed in this young man thousands of miles away, and she believed that she was investing in the kingdom of God through investing in him. And I think that's what Jesus' point is, is pointing to in this parable. Our investment of the kingdom of God should be relational. It transforms us not because it just teaches us to be generous, but because it helps us forms rela form relationships in the power of the Holy Spirit with those that we otherwise would have no relationship with. It opens up the possibility of loving community with those outside of our social strata, outside of our silos, loving community that feeds our souls. So the question to ponder this morning, the question to bring to the Lord in prayer, is where God is calling you to invest your time, your love, and your money. Who in our, our church community, our Greensboro community, or our global community might need part of your worldly wealth more than you do? There are many ways to give in-house at Redeemer, of course, and we will be doing a whole series on generosity in the coming seasons. But I also want to point you to the great need that there is in Greensboro um, to serve the world, oh, no, to serve those who the world is not so kind to. We have the most emotional preaching staff. We <laughs> deserve an award. <laughs> can never hold it together. <laughs> Try again. So I would encourage you to prayerfully pick a ministry or organization in Greensboro that serve those who the world is not so kind to. The poor, the incarcerated, the abused, the hungry, the disabled, the homeless, and start volunteering both of your time and giving of your money to widen the network of your kingdom relationships outside these four walls. That might be the Greensboro Urban Ministries, which serves the homeless in our midst, or the Out of the Garden Project, which feeds many hungry children and families in Greensboro, or Young Life Capernaum, which provides a place of belonging and love for folks with disabilities. It might be giving to Youth Focus, which serves kids in the foster care system in Greensboro. Or Hope Academy, which serves kids in um, low-income and at-risk neighborhoods like Glenwood. Or a domestic violence shelter. It might be serving in a local prison or a jail ministry. It might be going across the street to combat female veteran Families United, which serves low-income veteran women who um, have been wounded from war or maybe serving in the local branch of the National Farm Worker Ministry, who cares for those who pick our food, but often go hungry and homeless themselves. Or it might be a one-on-one -on -one relationship with someone you meet in church, or your neighborhood, or maybe on the street by chance, and taking the bold move to build a relationship with them and offer them hospitality and financial help. The opportunities to invest in caring for those that God holds dear to his heart are endless, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you need help changing your relationship with money, our parish staff is always here to help you. We are here to help connect you with ways to give and to serve, to challenge and equip you to give sacrificially. Ultimately, all this is good news. It's a hard parable, but it's good news. Good news for our world, good news for our hearts, and good news for our pocketbooks, though not potentially in the conventional meaning of that phrase. Receive the good news and go forth and be agents of the kingdom of God blessing those you encounter and building relationships to 
the glory of the eternal age to come. Amen.